This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The terse and unusual alert came in just before 8 a.m. this morning. Doctors are concerned about the health of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. And given the source, it's code for a very serious situation. And that's bolstered by the fact that her immediate family is either at or en route to Balmoral, where she is resting comfortably, according to the palace. Now, she's occupied a huge and widely respected place on the world stage for as long or longer than many of us have been alive. If you want to talk about the Queen, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am here with Suzanne Boyd, editor-in-chief and publisher of Zoomer magazine and also an avid royal watcher. Thanks for taking the time, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. So what what did you think when you saw this alert? Well, um, we were, have been expecting it. Um, her health has been touch and go for a while, and she's always been so resilient and always, you know, rising to the occasion. But there's been, for the since last October, there were, you know, she was hospitalized. She's been doing less and less. The fact she didn't come down from Balmoral to um, greet the new prime minister was telling and then ca- canceling the Privy Council meeting the day after she did rallied, I guess, to meet the new prime minister um, to uh, uh, invite her to create a government in her name. And then not doing a Privy Council meeting by Zoom, to me, was very telling. So I wasn't surprised Hmm. by the news this morning. But of course, it's shocking because she's been so eternal. She has been. And a lot of the health issues that she's had have been characterized as mobility issues. And she, unlike the Pope, doesn't want to appear in a wheelchair. So we, not that those are trivial, they're very serious. But but I guess uh, that's why this seems... A little bit surprising, perhaps. Well, yeah, well, but she has looked quite frail. She lost a lot of weight and, you know, she was frail. But you're right, because, I mean, one of our best performing stories on EverythingZoomer.com for the last 14 years was called Secrets of Royal Longevity. (laughs) And, you know, it was based on her mother who lived to 101 years old. And her mother was not as healthy as the queen, even though they both have a drink every day. The queen was riding and walking her lands up until like several you know, months ago. She was also seen driving several months ago. So, But it was really the loss of weight. She just looked quite frail. At, um, I think at three months ago, it was just quite shocking depending on how she normally looked for the last little while. And um, so, and I think with Prince Philip passing as well, and um, there's just been a sense of her finalizing matters, taking care of family business, the announcement about Camilla. Um, she's been doing certain things that I think has just been a, a closing of the door. Hmm. Uh, and speaking of a closing of the door, I mean, the royal institution obviously endures because people have talked about, well, Charles is a lot less popular than the Queen, of course. And, and I remember there was talk about skipping a generation. Is, is any of that actual? No, none <laughs> of it's actual. I think the royal family is still burned by the abdication, which was the quirk of history that brought the Queen to the throne in the first place because she wasn't in the line of succession. And she gave that speech that we're all hearing ad infinitum on the news today at age 21 in South Africa when she said, as long as I live, I will serve you. The succession will keep as it is. Charles's popularity has grown because I think the times have caught up with him, his environmentalism, all the things people thought were odd about him. And I think what's happened with him is what happened with the Queen, the sense of duty, just keep keeping going on. And 
William and Catherine and George is wait, are waiting in the wings, and the people I think love that. So I think there will be a King Charles, and then um, and he will reign until there's a King William. Then there'll be a King George, and on it will go. Hmm. Uh, what about? Uh, I mean, it's it's very early to talk mm-hmm. about this, but the other thing that that people talk about is that perhaps this would be a moment for Canada to um, become a republic. Is the sentiment here, though? I mean, is it strong enough? It's, and every time I've talked to any people who understand the constitutionality of it, they say it's just too complicated to unwind it all. Like, it would be such an expensive upheaval, a years-long undertaking. So really, is the is the spirit really there to do it? As much and more people say, why do we have a monarchy? Is there really the will in the population to go through that schism? It's been done in other countries. Yeah. Well, time will tell. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> it's been definitely done in other countries. The other thing is that, I mean... She is widely respected, even mm-hmm. by people who don't like the yep. idea of monarchy. Mm-hmm. And her service started in the Second World War. She was mm-hmm. an ambulance driver. And that is kind of, I mean, you mentioned Charles mm-hmm. stepping up and duty, but, you know, he would not reach her hem. No, and no one can. I mean, she's she is uh, one in a kind um no one will have that scale or that scope. And what's really fascinating about her is in her older age, she really did step up as a moral authority in a time of COVID when she gave that we'll meet again speech that harkened back to her service in the war. And um, there will never be another one, I think. But I think the British people like the monarchy. I think the economy likes the monarchy. Um, because of what it brings to the table and the tourism it attracts. And it's just part of who they are. So no one will can ever fill her footsteps and no one will ever try. I mean, you, everyone has to be their own sort of monarch. The, everyone has to be their, their own monarch. And um, w- I mean, I'm assuming that it would. What, how do you see the next few days? I think incredibly heart wrenching. I think also royal watchers will remember, especially for William and Harry. It was the Balmoral is incredibly significant to the Queen's life. It's where Prince Philip proposed to her. It's where she was, where Harry and William were, where they got the news that Diana had died and the Queen had to come down, you know, from England, from Balmoral back to Buckingham Palace after the outcry. And for them to go back there for this moment, I think everyone watching will remember the history and understand how incredibly heart-wrenching it will be for the family and the upheaval it will be to people who have lived all their lives with the Queen. Suzanne Boyd, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again, unfortunately. It's sad. It's sad. Thanks so much, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. Well, officials at all levels of government are chiming in with well wishes for the Queen. And there is also a heck of a lot going on here in Toronto with TIFF starting tonight, along with many, many other events. The streets are crowded with people who are happy to get out after COVID. And we also just had some breaking news. The Ontario legislature has passed the strong mayor legislation. And now it's time to tune into the town. And let's bring in Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, joining us here in studio for the first time in a very long time. Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations and counselor Brad Bradford, Ward 19, Beaches, East York. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Where's everybody else? <coughs> Bob? Brad? I am there. Okay. Oh, hello. Good. I'm here as well. Good. So um, we've all been uh, very uh, preoccupied with news about the Queen. I mean, and and I mean, I guess it hits people at all levels. Do you have any thoughts, Karen? Well, you know, it's just, you know, I think we take the Queen for granted because she's just been such a stable force for so long. 
And uh, now to think that that's coming to an end, I think people are really going to have mixed emotions about it. Some people who don't really have any opinion for the monarchy just think we should just move on. But she really has had such an amazing life and has contributed so much and um, has been such a stable force that she it, it when she leaves and there's a transition, I'm not sure we actually understand how rocky that might be. Hmm. Bob? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Karen on this one. Uh, I think... Uh People, even people who may not be huge fans of monarchy, um, are huge fans of the Queen. I kind of fit. I'm a Quebecer, so I kind of fit into that category myself. Uh, but she's been around. She's done her job uh, exquisitely over all these years. And it's. In, I saw one interesting fact today that the Queen has been uh, the Queen for 45 percent of Canada's existence. I mean, that, that is remarkable wow. in itself. So uh, replacing her will be huge. It will not be easy uh, for the next monarch. And I think um, should that happen, today is not the day to have this discussion, but um, uh, we probably should have a, have a, a strong, healthy discussion on, on, uh, on who our head of state should be, um, uh, should the Queen pass, and, uh, and should, uh, should we move into another phase. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we've had that conversation in dribs and drabs, and I think you're right, Bob, it's not, it's not the right day to do it. Uh, Brad, I mean, I, I know that uh, tributes have been pouring out from city council. It, 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 you know, it touches everybody a little bit. Oh, for sure it does. And, you know, uh, this was concerning news to, to read this morning and all of our thoughts, I think, as, as Torontonians and, and Canadians are really with the Queen and the Royal Family at this time. I'm happy to hear that she's surrounded by family uh, and there's that, that comfort that's offered with that. But, you know, as everyone said, we have a very special connection with the monarchy uh, here in Canada. Um, the events that, that follow in the coming days, you know, as that plays out, will be very watch, watch very closely here in this country, but around the world. And let's remember, you know, the Queen has been to Canada more than any other Commonwealth nation. Uh, I think it's 23 official visits, um, seven trips here in the city of Toronto. So there's a connection and there's a relationship. And this, in fact, is the year of the Platinum Jubilee, 70 years serving as monarch. And, you know, we'll likely never see that again. It's, it's a huge deal. It's a huge life of service, a life of duty. I was at an event this summer uh, marking the Platinum Jubilee with the, the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario and seeing all of the photos of the Queen, you know, meeting with heads of state from around the world, uh, all the different crises, the, the bright spots, the dark spots of humanity. She has literally been there at the biggest moments of human history. And uh, that's a legacy, a life of service that will last forever. Okay, turning to uh, news of the day at the municipal level. So uh, this just in, then the legislature has passed the strong mayor bill. Uh, it, they're touting it as a way to get housing built more quickly. A lot of people doubt that, Karen. Yeah, certainly it's not about getting housing built more quickly. The mayor doesn't need any more power for that. Everything, all the tools that are required to fix that issue, he currently has, as does council. And so it is, it's completely unclear um, what is being, trying to be achieved here, um, although I, I think it will have, and I'll be interested to hear what Councillor Bradford has to say, I mean, I, I think it will have an impact on how councillors are able to do their jobs and um, advocate for their communities and advocate for citywide issues. Again, you know, I, I don't understand Premier Ford's obsession with city council. It's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen with a premier being so interested in how councils run. And, and I don't understand it, and it's never, um, I mean, I guess I understand it a little bit, but to take it to this degree is not something I understand at all. Uh, Brad? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly supportive of this. I've been watching the evolution of this as it's taken place over the past couple of weeks um, with the legislation going through today. I mean, 
being billed as a, you know, an opportunity to build more housing. I think there is some truth to that. My experience as a, as a local councillor over the past four years, while limited compared to some of my colleagues, um, there are a number of instances where, um, you know, local government has been an impediment to building more housing. Um, you know, there are often times when I have council colleagues who will move motions to, you know, send, send lawyers or resources to fight our own planning recommendations at the OMB. And so that contributes to delay, that contributes to uh, not bringing the, those supply and those units on sooner. Uh, and if there is a way to expedite and move these projects forward faster, you know, we, we all talk about the housing crisis that's facing Toronto and, and compromising our future success. If this is a way for government to operate more efficiently, get things done quicker, then I think that's, that's worth exploring. Um, I think we have a mayor who is, you know, extremely thoughtful in the way that he works with council. Uh, you know, and if he's reelected, I expect that to continue. You know, you can't always guarantee who's going to be in that chair going forward, but there are some protections built into that uh, where, where council with two thirds is, uh, you know, in a position where they can uh, veto a, a mayor's veto if, if that's what it comes down to. But I think perhaps the least talked about and most important thing here is the ability for, you know, the elected officials, the mayor to set the budget. Um, you know, the federal government, that is set by cabinet. The provincial government, that is set by cabinet, being the provincial um, politicians. Uh, City Hall doesn't have that. It's actually a budget process that's driven by the bureaucracy. And so I think that's really important because the budget is about where your priorities are, where your values are, what you want to get done. And then lastly, the third piece is the opportunity to, you know, put key staff members in positions to help you drive a mandate and an agenda. Uh, anyone who's had close interactions with City Hall can tell you that there are a lot of extremely talented, hardworking, professional civil servants there. Um, but there are also moments where, you know, folks get caught up in process, uh, you know, too often. And a lot of stuff that hasn't help. happened since the pandemic. And you wonder exactly what they yeah. were, what they so were want, doing, I all these folks. hardworking, fully paid civil servants. Bob, uh, do you buy that the uh, Karen is suggesting that it has to do with Doug Ford's history? with the municipality. Um, I've heard a lot of people doubt that it's really a, uh, a move to make housing easier to build. Uh, and, but on the other hand, I mean, you know, the, the, the mayor of Toronto is elected with more votes than anyone else in the country. And you'd think he'd have a little more than one vote. The truth is, is normally the case in life is somewhere in between. I think some of what Karen is saying related to Doug Ford and and his focus on uh, on cities, particularly the city of Toronto, is true. But on the other side of it, um, my view is, why don't we give this a try? Because the status quo is not great. Uh, the status quo is not producing a lot of housing um, in a in a reasonable period of time. Um, so on, on the housing issue, let's see if this this can work. I like the budget ideas. The way Toronto makes it, its budget is kind of absurd and kind of dated. And uh, there should be some accountability for the for the number one person in the city, which is the mayor, to bring forward a budget. He's the one that's elected citywide. And at the end of the day, he should be held accountable for the budget. And I also I agree with Councillor Bradford. I like the idea of the mayor having significantly more uh, power as it relates to senior appointment or senior staff in the city. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a you know, a, a committee-based uh, piecemeal approach right now, um, and uh, I don't think that's necessarily great, uh, great either. So my view is let's give this a try. If it works, terrific. If it doesn't. Maybe there's opportunities uh, to amend the legislation or go back and uh, and uh, and fix the things that aren't working. Yeah, just a final thought on that, though. Like, you know, the, the reality is the mayor has always had the ability to choose who's going to help implement his agenda, be it from city staff to council colleagues to support it. But I, I just want to take us back to, you know, during a time pre-pandemic when Mayor Tory was out promoting the fact that there were more cranes building in this city than any other city in the world. And so it doesn't seem like we have a problem getting housing built. Um, we don't have enough housing for the number of people that want to come here. That I accept. But there's also some things that are systematic and that are not going to be fixed by a strong mayor. So it just comes back to the, 
question I mean, we have, what? sorry, we have huge number of uh, cranes and shovels 100%. in the ground. And they are, but they are building hugely expensive, tiny condominiums bought yeah. up by investors. Right. But uh, no mayor can fix that. Well, I don't know how the yeah, mayor fixes so that with more power. So th- that that's where I don't get that There's argument. I know that, yeah. that things are held up by neighborhood associations who want to protect their single-family home neighborhoods. But that, Isn't that evil? But that's on the decline. I think that, that I don't think that's as true today as it was 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. But, um, you know, presumably... The other thing, when people criticize this, and again, you know... I think that the mayor of Toronto should have a little more clout than, I don't know, um, than, you know, a single vote on council. Uh, But, uh, you know, the people who argue against it say it will make the job of city councillor, which is already not looking so attractive, even less attractive. Brad, do you agree with that? Well, not really. I mean, there's this fixation of, uh, like, what does this do for your, quote, power as a, as a city council? And, and I think that's the wrong lens to look at it. Um, people elect us as a council, as a local government to get things done for the community and to get things done for the city. Uh, but, you, you know, my experience has been when you work together with people, that is the pathway to success. Uh, I'm, I'm less fixated on the, uh, the focus of power for a local councillor, and I'm more with the issue of moving projects forward. And if we're going to do that in a different way, or as Bob suggests, try something new, let's be honest, there's room for improvement. We could do things better. We could do things more effectively, more efficiently. And, uh, you know, if this is a way to help advance that, then I think it's an idea worth considering and exploring. So I, I don't think it makes the, less, the job less appealing. What's appealing about the job is the impact and the positive difference you can make in a community that presumably you're very passionate about. That still remains. We will work with whoever is the head of council, mayor, as we will with our other 24 council colleagues, you know, to get those things done for the community. That, Karen, that remains. Karen, do you agree? Does it make the job of councillor less attractive? And we know that uh, just judging by the numbers, it's, it is already less attractive than it used to be. Well, it's, you know, again, I exited council before the new ward system took effect, but you know, there is, it, it does beg the question, what is the role of the councillor? Is it to just represent the local community or is it to help on these larger city issues? Because if it's to help on the larger city issues, then, you know, the, uh, giving the mayor even more power, because mayors never lose, very rarely, very rarely lose votes on council. So that's not that he needs more power. Um, but it is, it does bring into question if you just need city councillors to deal, deal with local city business, then then that should be the job description. But if you actually want councillors to be elected to help on major files, then and then I, I don't think the structure that's set in place right now it will do that. Bob, uh, turning to good news, the city is just hopping. TIFF starts tonight. We have lots of celebrities coming in. People are out, uh, I think, with a bit of a vengeance. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was out to downtown uh, yesterday afternoon, and it was packed. We couldn't even get into two uh, two uh, two different uh, bars for a beer. So that's uh, I take that as a good sign. And uh, the city seems to be back and uh, and raring to go. I think it's going to be a very uh, successful and very busy tip this year. Um, it looks like it's in uh, really good shape. Opening night is tonight, and. Uh, it looks like they've got a great lineup for the week and uh, lots of folks coming in. So uh, hopefully it'll be a big success. Economically, I mean, I forget the number, and it's old anyway, these economic impact studies, but uh, the city should be doing really well out of everything that's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And I just heard a statistic to our quote today that um, the hotel rooms are packed and uh, at, you know, being let out at a premium. So it's good for the it's good for the industries that were hit the hardest by COVID uh, to help. It's you know, not good if you have to pay for a hotel room. Not good if you have to pay that. for a hotel room, but <laughs> but you know, not good if you're trying to get if you're Bob and you're trying to get a beer. But uh, it's 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 great to see that the city's coming alive again. Uh huh, Brad. Well, I would echo that. What a spectacular day for opening day of TIFF. Uh, it's great to have the festival back, and um, you know, we are a magnet for. 
uh, international artists were a magnet for film production. Uh, TIFF is one of the most prominent film festivals in the world, and it is, you know, centered, of course, right in downtown Toronto. So that's something really special to have, uh, you know, from a from an arts and culture perspective. It also, as been alluded to, is a huge economic revenue generator for the city, and it coalesces in a really nice way with fantastic weather, a great time of year, everybody's buzzing, and you got all the sports stuff coming back online with the Raptors and the Leafs. The Jays are going to make a nice October run here. So it's a great time to be in Toronto, and having the world uh, posting up to visit here uh, for a few weeks is really special as well. Lots on lots on display, lots to share, lots to offer. Uh, I, I hesitate to pivot to something uh, that's not so great as we're, we're ending, but the other side of that, the, the traffic is, oh, oh, is just awful and Whoa. horrible, and all that coordination that Mayor Tory promised and says is happening i don't think it's happening honestly i think the only coordination is how many streets they can impact with construction at one point (laughs) (laughs) oh wait there's this free street do something (laughs) get a pile on yeah it's crazy it it is it's 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 really really hard to get around which um, and almost dangerous it can be dangerous yes Mm -hmm. it's annoying for sure Mm -hmm. i i I think we need to take a good look at that because it does feel like uh, there was a time when it was starting to feel like it was coordinated to a certain extent. I don't get that feeling. <laughs> when was that, Bob? Uh, well, I would say a few years ago. It's been a while now. But, you know, if you're heading, I, I go to TFC games, and if you're heading out to Liberty Village or uh, heading out uh, We're here. in the X, uh, uh, where you are, yeah, absolutely, uh, Libby, um, you know, it is bad. Like, it's really bad. And there's there's no quick simple route to figure out how to get uh how to get there without slamming right into traffic so i think we've got some work to do on that file oh it was the other day i i took my relatives i said okay you're only going to billy bishop no problem boy was i wrong yeah. Well, even I haven't been in studio for a couple of years, and so I, you know, I, I did allow myself extra time, but I just got here with the traffic yeah. and the construction yeah. and the road closures. It's just, it's, it's an exciting journey <laughs> in the city. <laughs> but some would argue this is a good problem to have. I uh, guess. Lots of, lots of other cities don't have this problem right now. Yeah, I, I bet Brad would make that argument. Am I wrong, Brad? Well, you know, state of good repair, infrastructure investment and expansion is super important. And as a city that's really committed to growth, uh, you know, we have to do that. And in in fact, I think the challenges that we're dealing with is because we have not invested enough in the infrastructure to support that growth uh, in previous decades. You know, as Karen knows very well, um, you know, we need to continue to drive transit investments. That's going to be a huge part of making sure folks have other options to get around the city. But it's really painful to be stuck in a car right now, and that's not lost on me. It's obviously campaign season here at City Hall, so I'm going out to talk to residents in Beaches East York. And folks south of Danforth and the beaches in particular are really reeling with the uh, the impacts of the Gardner construction. And, you know, you just point north to the Eglinton LRT, which has been a decade in the making. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's going to be really great once it's once it's open. But it's just been absolutely horrible for everyone in that community and anyone trying to get east-west across the top of the city there. So the Gardner is much the same long term. This is going to be a fantastic investment. Uh, it's going to make things a lot better. But until we Will get we there, live these mega it. infrastructure projects are super painful <laughs> for people. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a macabre note to end on. But my my husband made he cycles a lot. Made a bet with his friends about whether they would live to see the end of the construction on Eglinton. Yes, I'm not taking that bet. (laughs) (laughs) I live at Young and Eglinton. I'm not taking that bet. Okay, well, okay. I I wouldn't. Anyway, on on that note, uh, people, I hope you're going to get out there and enjoy some of the very many things that are going on uh, despite the traffic. If you can walk, maybe, that's a good option right now. Thank you so much, Councillor Brad Bradford, Bob Richardson, and Karen Stintz. Thank you. Great to chat. Thanks. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about rising interest rates, and uh, there may be an opportunity in there if you have a little money that you may have saved up. There's, There's a little bit of good news in that. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Yesterday, we had another massive rate hike from the Bank of Canada, and one which will likely inflict more pain on many Canadians. For those of us with savings, though, it is raising a possibility that's been off the table for a long time. I'm talking about buying GICs. I actually read a very interesting personal finance piece in the Globe and Mail about this, uh, which also advises people people not to buy them from the big banks. So let's get to the macro and the micro of this. And if you have questions, well, hopefully we can give you some answers. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Davidoff, Director of the UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate at the Soder School of Business and Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletters. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, let us begin with Dr. Davidoff. So this was totally expected, but it's really a big rate hike, and uh, it's it's in the short term, I would think, going to inflict a lot of pain on a lot of people. Yeah, you know, fortunately, people with variable rate mortgages mostly, uh, you know, uh, have fixed payments, so it slows down their amortization, uh, and they're paying more interest, but that's not a giant pain. So some people with variable rate mortgages do pay more. Uh, a lot of consumer debt, of course, is variable rate. Uh, and, you know, every month about 160th of homeowners renew their mortgages. And, uh, of course, they're going to see much higher costs. Mm-hmm. But the theory is that as you raise rates, people spend less and that will tame inflation. But I think in the short term, couldn't that lead to more price hikes, Dr. Davidoff? Uh, generally, no. Uh, you know, you could argue that, a, you know, a landlord or other business facing higher costs of capital would seek to pass that on to consumers. Uh, you know, that could happen through a reduction in investment. Certainly, you would expect rents to rise over time in response. Uh, but generally speaking, the, you know, it's found that, that rate increases slow down economies and, and, and uh, tend to reduce inflation. Hmm. Um uh, Gordon Pape, is it a good time to take a look at buying GICs? Well, GIC rates are going up. They're obviously not going up in lockstep with the rate of increase of the Bank of Canada, uh, but certainly they're trending higher. I was checking uh, GIC rates this morning, and uh, you can get a one-year GIC rate at uh, some of the uh, digital financial institutions for 4.5%. 4.5% for a year at this point in time is not a bad choice. Uh, you can also get uh, five-year rates of 5%, uh, again, from some of the smaller institutions. Uh, but I wouldn't want to lock in my money for that length of time, uh, given the fact that uh, the Bank of Canada has clearly indicated that uh, it's going to continue to ri- uh, increase rates in the future. We're probably going to see another uh, jump of um, 25 or 50 basis points at the uh, meeting that's going to be held in late October. Hmm. Uh, Do you agree, uh, this was uh, Rob Carrick in the Globe and Mail, and he said, whatever you do, don't buy them from big banks because uh, you can do a lot better elsewhere and don't get suckered in uh, with introductory rates. Gordon, do you agree with that advice? Well, I, I certainly agree if you're, what you're getting is um, something that's only going to be in place for three months, something like that, which is what introductory rates usually are. Uh, if you can get a, a one-year GIC rate from a, a major bank at uh, anywhere from 4 to 4.5%, I certainly wouldn't shy away from that. Uh, but uh, definitely at, at this point in time, it pays to shop around because what's happening is the rates are changing almost by the day. Uh, I uh, usually use a few websites to uh, see what rates are being offered by various institutions, uh, one of them being uh, ratehub.ca. 
and uh, they can kind of keep you in touch with just who is offering what at any given moment and allow you to get the best possible return on your money. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Davidoff, uh, does this represent, in your view, uh, a kind of beginning of a shift in, in how people invest? Yeah, well, I think asset prices do get challenged when rates are rising. Uh, we've seen this giant hunt for yield in recent years when uh, riskless securities paid so little in interest that really served to drive asset prices up. Uh, when riskless or near-riskless rates of return are as attractive as they are today, at least in nominal terms, uh, that does take demand away from investing in riskier assets and productive assets. Uh, and, and that's part of the slowdown we see in the economy, and it can uh, lead to a reduction in wealth. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes, how long does it take, on average, for the rate hikes to work? That's really varied, uh, and it depends on uh, you know the magnitude of the rate hikes. It depends on how difficult the supply conditions you are. You know, uh, if it was pure inflation based on consumer expectations, that is, hey, you know, in, uh, prices have been rising, and I think they're going to rise again. So I'd better rise, increase my prices before uh, or as costs are rising, and consumers expect it. So I'm okay, and my competitors would do it. That sort of self-perpetuating inflation, I think rate hikes can, can be quite effective. A problem we have today is a lot of the reason why prices are increasing is supply chain problems arising from one COVID, you know, maybe concentrated in China. And, of course, the horrendous war in Ukraine, where maybe the least bad effect is inflation. But, of course, it is leading to inflation through commodities. Gordon, you were talking about not locking in GICs because uh, the bank has told us very clearly that they're going to keep raising rates. Again, I'm looking at this personal finance piece, and they said, and it was saying, "Hey, at least eight alternative banks were still offering five percent uh, on five-year GICs." Is is that like a deal that's too good to be true? Do you agree? Uh, no, I don't agree. I think those rates are going to go higher. Uh, if the Bank of Canada follows through with um, what they have said in their statement yesterday, uh, I think we're going to see five-year GIC rates at the smaller institutions, perhaps it's five and a half, six percent uh, within the next few months. And um, at that point in time, you'd look back on uh, the five percent uh, offer as perhaps being. Um, have been insufficient in the circumstances. Uh, so I would not lock in for that length of time. There's one other point I think that needs to be made about inflation, and um, this is one that really the bank has not addressed yet, except in a uh, kind of roundabout way. And that is the danger that we are going to be seeing uh, an increase in um, the union stances on um, negotiating positions as far as the rate increases the uh, uh, price increases and wage increases are concerned. Uh, we're already seeing uh, some unions demanding uh, wage increases in the 10% plus range, uh, with the argument being that uh, workers need this kind of increase in order to keep up with the rising cost of living. But if that happens and gets baked into uh, the uh, negotiating system, that's going to uh, make the uh, problems of the Bank of Canada even more difficult and prolong the cycle of uh, rate increases that we're seeing. Well, yeah, and the the anomaly, I guess, is that we're seeing this happening at a time when there's huge competition for labor, which is in short supply. So how will that factor into things, Dr. Davidoff? Yeah, well, I think that's a very good observation uh, Gordon just made. Uh, and there are other reasons, you know, certainly statistical inflation operates with a lag, as well as real inflation with wage contracts uh, adapting to backward-looking inflation. Uh, you have things like uh, rent contracts, uh, where rents is a significant part of inflation, and rent contracts, you know, are fixed. Some of, in some places, they're subject to rent control, and in D.C., we won't see renewal rents uh, increase much this year. Uh, but in other locations where you have more flexibility in increasing your rents, uh, those happen with a lag. 
Uh, and so we don't see the increases in rents uh, that some people will pay coming in. So uh, inflation, uh, you know, is kind of sticky. It, it's tough to tough to purge it from the system all of a sudden, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, Gordon Pape, but time to wrap things up. What's the bottom line on your advice for people? And the bottom line is that uh, interest rates are going to go higher, and therefore uh, don't take any action that is going to um, put you in jeopardy as we go down the road. Uh, stay short term and um, wait and see how we bottom out here. Okay. Good advice. Thanks so much, Dr. Thomas Davidoff and Gordon Pape. Thank you very much. All righty. We are going to take another break. And speaking of a shortage of labor, uh, there's a new survey that says just about half of us have trouble either getting a doctor at all or getting a timely appointment with a family doctor, even if we have one. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. A new survey from Angus Reid finds half of Canadians either unable to see the doctor they have within a week, that's 33%, or trying, or they're, they're unable to find a doctor at all. Now, only a few say they have a doctor and can get an appointment quickly, while one in three say it usually takes longer than they'd like. But if it was urgent and they'd have to understand that it was urgent, they could get an appointment promptly. So getting in to see specialists and getting diagnostic tests like uh, MRIs or CT scans, well, that those are especially challenging. So I'd like to hear from you. Is that your experience? We keep hearing stories from people who, who a doctor retires and they can't even get a prescription renewed. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Nadia Alam, a family doctor and anesthetist in Georgetown, Ontario, and a past president of the Ontario Medical Association. Hi, Nadja. How are you? I'm good, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. So uh, I would imagine that in Georgetown, uh, the situation is even more difficult than it might be in Toronto. It's as bad as Toronto, I would say. And in some areas of Toronto, I, I would argue that it's probably worse than it is in Georgetown. My colleagues and I have known for years that family medicine was slowly going into crisis and was reaching a state where the government and and physician advocacy groups and, and all of that would have to pay attention and do something about it. We'd heard stories, like some of my downtown family physician friends from Toronto would say, you know, I know of this doc. He has an old practice. She has an old practice. They've worked for 30 plus years. Their practice doesn't really speak English. They mainly speak Cantonese, or they mainly speak Italian, or they mainly speak Greek. Most of their patients don't speak English that well or at all. And so when those physicians retire, how are their patients going to find a physician who can take care of them, let alone understand them? Wow. So we knew this problem was coming. Georgetown, at least, is predominantly English-speaking, so it it helps. Yeah, but I mean, these barriers are are insane and the, have to be considered. the The whole issue of physicians retiring and it's been coming. It's been coming for a long time. It's just the demographics. But uh, you know, when you layer COVID and and crisis on top of it, it's it's very difficult. And uh, you know, I've got to say, they're not all. My doctor is well into his eighties. <laughs> And he he practices in a group, yep. so um, you know I don't get, I get to see him in person very often, and that's just fine. But uh, you know, uh, a lot of them are not willing to keep working into their eighties. No, and they can't. Right at some point, you do want a physician who's younger, who may be able to provide different perspectives and a different set of skills and knowledge to 
to your concerns or your parents' concerns or your family's concerns or your friends' concerns. The problem that we're also seeing right now is that as physicians retire, nobody's taking over. So family medicine, family medicine residents aren't choosing to do general practice medicine. They're choosing to subspecialize into um, hospitalist medicine or palliative care or psychotherapy or emerge. Um, and they're not doing full-scope cradle-to-the-grave care as more family medicine residents used to. Further downstream, fam, uh, medical students are not choosing family medicine at all. They're choosing to go into specialties. And part of the reason why is to be a family doctor, you have to know a heck of a lot. You have to be comfortable managing many, many illnesses, right? I think the statistics say family doctors manage like 60% of psychiatric illnesses. And then for all the complex stuff, you have to have specialist support. And sometimes that support isn't there. So you're kind of left holding the bag with patients who are more complicated than you can handle, but there's no one else to handle them. Hmm. Uh, let's take a call from Margaret in Toronto. Hello, Margaret. Hi, how are you doing? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Okay. Um, I myself am very lucky. I have a good family doctor um, you know, who works very well with me. I've had him for a number of years. But the other issue that I have is um, I'm a blind person, so when you go to a walk-in clinic or a hospital, and I find this with people who have disabilities, it adds to it. Um, the, the, I find that the medical staff often don't know what to do um, when it comes to explaining things or helping you on the table or helping you, you know, if you have to go get tests or something. Um, and I, I kind of hope somewhere down the line somebody would look into that uh, part of the health system as well. Okay, Margaret, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Allen respond to that. Margaret raises an excellent point, and this is where having a family doctor who's known you for a long time, having an office that's known you for a long time, having an environment that's accessible and friendly to everybody, whatever shape or size or ability they come with, right? Whatever unique traits that they have, they come with having an office that's equipped and trained to deal with that. Sure, the people can be great and friendly and helpful, but if you have an office whose doors aren't wide enough, an office that's too that's small and crowded, um, little things like that can actually make a big difference. I know that in my office, um, sometimes some of my patients who are using walkers, right? The other day I had two elderly patients came in, they both had walkers. We could barely fit one of the walkers into my room. And I would love to get a bigger office with, with more resources, physical resources. The problem comes down to being able to pay for those offices. And for many family doctors, I'm one of the lucky ones, for many family doctors, the way they're paid makes it almost impossible to upgrade in any meaningful way. Uh, so and patients like Margaret deserve that. They really do. Why, why would you say that young doctors are not choosing family medicine? Is it a money thing? Partly it's a money thing. More than that, though, I mean, if you go back to the idea of joy and work, money plays a role, but so does respect and autonomy and being supported. More and more family doctors are finding that they're spending a ton of time filling out forms, going back and forth with insurance companies for time that patients need off because they're sick or their loved ones are sick and they have to be caregivers for them, they're finding that the paperwork, the results of lab tests and investigations is, is overwhelming. I mean, Libby, I have a small practice. I've got maybe 500, 600 patients that I carry and take care of, and many of them are elderly. If I don't check my results every single day, by the time two days have gone by, I'm behind in my paperwork by 100 reports. And it's not like I look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's done. No, I look at a report and a result and I say, well, the patient needs to be informed. I need to figure out if I need to do anything further. I need to make sure that I've proactively set up a system so that, you know, if I need to send them for a colonoscopy in five years, if I need to do a thyroid ultrasound in one year, if I have to arrange a, a palliative blood transfusion in a week or two months, I've got that set up to remind me uh, so they don't fall through the cracks. I've, I've heard these things before, and I've also heard them in the context of scope of practice for other people. I mean, for a lot of the paperwork, you don't need an MD. 
right? And even for things like renewing a prescription, there are other people who can do this. Isn't that part of the solution? Well, there are. And certainly um, pharmacists have been able to expand some of the scope of their practice, and they can actually renew certain prescriptions for a certain period of time. The problem becomes the patients who haven't been seen in the office for a while. I, I found out just the other day that a patient had had her blood pressure medications renewed. She hadn't been seen in the office for a year. She hadn't had her blood pressure checked for a year. And maybe it's fine, but maybe it's not. Maybe she has other illnesses that need to be managed because all medications interact with one another. And if those illnesses aren't managed properly, then keeping her on her blood pressure medications may actually be harmful for her. She might actually need to be on something else. So that can happen. We need to create a safety net so that, yes, you're right, we're using every provider, including MDs, to their full scope, but people don't slip through the cracks. So uh, what's the bottom line on this? Are we just heading headlong into uh, disaster, or, or are people working on solutions here? I hope people are working on solutions. We're, we're at a critical state, and I think policymakers, like people in government, um, like people who are kind of arm's length to the government in Ontario, that would be Ontario Health or that would be Ontario Health Teams. They're looking at it. They are alarmed by the critical shortage that we're seeing in primary care, the, the imbalance between workload and workflow and the fact that patients are, are suffering. They're looking at that. I know BC, for example, is changing how it's paying family doctors. The Atlantic provinces are looking at different recruitment strategies. In Ontario, what they're looking at is not just payment, but how do you restructure primary care so that you can support a family doctor, a nurse practitioner, the nurses who work in the primary care sector, the pharmacists, paramedics, everybody, so that they can work together to take care of the patient in the best way as possible. The sad truth, though, is, like the Angus Reid report said, only 14% of Canadians are getting good care. That's worse than the U.S. now. Hmm. We need to do better. We need to do better. On that note, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again and probably soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Naja Alam. Thank you very much, Libby. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So that is all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow if you haven't had a chance to get through or if you have more to say. Some of these things take a little while to digest. We've got higher interest rates. We've got difficulties in accessing a primary care, a family doctor, and we are all watching the situation with the Queen and wishing her the best. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.